Morning all, how are you doing? Um, okay, well today we're looking at Psalm 23 and we're thinking about faith for the future. So let's just pray. Dear Lord, as Psalm 19 says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you. Amen. Okay, um, hope you've got a slide, Andy. There's a picture somewhere. That's it, thank you. Okay, this is an artist's impression of Psalm 23, which I'm just going to leave there for you to ponder while I'm talking. It's a very personal psalm, um, but with universal appeal. And I'm going to share my rather personal response, um, and I hope that's okay, uh, and I hope some of it connects with you. And a picture paints a thousand words, but psalms were meant to be sung. And I get on better with psalms if I sort of sing each line while I'm thinking about it. A bit like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. This psalm, it was written by David, a musician. It's his greatest hit. And this isn't um, Lord Jesus, the good shepherd of the Gospels, um, because he hadn't been born when Psalm 23 was written. This is Yahweh, the great I am, God of the burning bush, the Lord in capital letters that Hovan told us about a couple of weeks ago. Now David, uh, he knew about shepherds, he used to be one. But now he was king, leader of the army, and governor or shepherd of his people. Leadership can be a lonely, pressurized place. David was a humble guy, well aware of his failings. Um, and everyone looked to David, but David looked to God. Now, as you heard from Hoban, we've no vicar at the moment, um, so we're, we're a church without a shepherd. And we're shepherding each other in many ways. Uh, and I think we're doing well in the circumstances. God is with us. But it'd be good to have a vicar again, though, won't it? It's probably not good for sheep to be too long without a shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Now we think of sheep uh, as daft creatures, Patricia, don't we? Um, straying into ditches wandering off mountains. But sheep know some smart things. Sheep know they won't shrink if it rains. That's pretty smart. And they know what's good for them too. If they stick with a shepherd, he'll lead them to food, water, a place to rest. It's humans who can be more stubborn, I think. We might ignore the shepherd figures in our lives and kick against doing what we're told. And maybe we can get away with that at home or at work. But if we want our souls restored, I think we'll have to listen to God and follow his lead. If you're wondering why you haven't heard from God lately, perhaps he's still waiting for you to do the last thing he asked you to do. I think God's got his work cut out with us, hasn't he? It's probably more like herding cats than herding sheep. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
I'm reading a book by Tom Wright, who's the Bishop of Durham. It's really about what the word righteousness means. There's 220 pages in this book, which shows you what a complicated word righteousness must be. I haven't finished the book yet, so don't ask me to explain it. Um, and to be honest, I'm quite confused at the moment. So um, to ask Hovan, he'll know. <laughs> have you ever felt lost? Do you ever have that dream where you're on the wrong path and you can't find your way back to the right path? When I was about 10, um, James Hughes and I were cycling up in Tilgate Forest, which was much bigger then. Uh, the golf course and the motorway weren't built. You could jump over the railway tracks if you're feeling brave, just in front of the trains sometimes. We cycled miles and got lost. I thought James knew where we were going, and he thought I knew where we were going. We got more and more lost trying to find the right path. And we got worried, partly because we knew we'd be in trouble for being home late, but mostly because we didn't know whether we'd ever get home again. We came out at Slotham, which we'd never heard of. And a kind man knew the right road back to Crawley. And people who know the way, they're very useful, aren't they? I work in London. Tourists are always asking me the way to things. And I'm very good at pointing. But I wish I was better at pointing people towards God. Because the people who pointed me towards God, they, they sort of changed my life. And I wonder, why don't I try harder? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I think about death a lot. Colin Southwood got knocked off his bike near Furnace Green Shops after school one day. It was dark and he had no lights on. He was 12. Colin was the first person I knew who died young and unexpectedly. Here today, gone today. Life's fragile, isn't it? People die all around us. My mate Daniel Martin, who used to sing with Julie Ball, uh, he died in 1977, barely 17, I think, cancer. I remember sort of 2,000 confused Thomas Bennett faces um, they were lining Ashdown Drive as we went past in the funeral cars. Can I ask you to stand up if you've been affected by cancer? In, in any way, yeah, thank you. Wow, that's quite a gathering, isn't it? Our suffering unites us somehow, doesn't it? Do we talk about this stuff enough, I wonder? My mum died of cancer in 1978, and my dad too, very soon after that. Me and my teenage sister, we had to bring up our younger brothers. I felt quite lost back then for a while. And sometimes you don't know how much you need your guides until they aren't there to guide you. John Lennon's death in 1980 upset me more than my, my parents dying. That's crazy, isn't it? I felt guilty about that for years. I think it was that Princess Diana thing. It's easier to show emotions when someone famous dies because others are affected too. But if it's just you that's grieving, it's harder to express. I only learned to let my grief out when John Lennon got shot. 
he sort of kind of symbolized, I think, that my childhood had died. I'm much more insecure than people realize. People who've lost parents at a young age, they often have sort of abandonment fears. So I worry constantly about Sue dying. I'm not as lost as I used to be, though. The good thing about having God as your guide is he isn't just going to disappear someday. Not that you can actually see him, but you know what I mean. And I'm sure if I keep trying to walk with God, he'll know where we're going, even if I don't. And the journey with God feels much better to me than the journey without God. And I think when your parents die, whether you're in your teens or your 70s, I think you have to reorientate yourself. When you become an orphan, maybe that's when you really have to grow up. Perhaps that's when we know in our hearts that we can't just be sheep. And maybe it gives us a sharper perspective on what shepherds do and why we need them and why some people need us to be shepherds for them. And Psalm 23, it's the traditional death psalm, isn't it? The funeral psalm. But that's not for the dead person's benefit, is it? It's for those left alive, because it's a psalm of life. And David isn't talking about the valley of death. It's the valley of the shadow of death. I picture this sort of steep-sided valley where the riverbed has dried up to leave a natural path at the bottom. But the sun can't penetrate, so it's always in this sort of eerie shadow. And for sheep, that's not really a dangerous place. They're in more danger beside the quiet waters because their, fence, their defenses will be down. Lions are more likely to prowl there and their shepherds are more likely to take a nap there. Yet walking through this sort of a valley's complicated shadows, that feels more scary because shadows throw strange and spooky shapes, don't they? And we've overactive imaginations in the dark too. We'll worry more about what might happen in the shadows of our minds than about what actually happens in reality. Now this shepherd knows that the shady pass is necessary for the sheep to go through and he'll sense they're afraid of the darkness. So he'll be on his guard to keep them safe and steer them through to the other side. And the sheep will need to face their fears if they're to follow their shepherd. And that's true for us too, I think. But I do think that God has traveled all the paths before us and he knows which paths are the right ones for us to take. And if we take the wrong path, he can rescue us and put us back on the right path. He does it all the time. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Sheep probably can't see much when it's dark, but they'll be able to hear the clack clack of the shepherd's staff on a rock up ahead, which reminds them they're not alone and gives them direction. And if they wander off the path or get stuck, as Patricia was saying, a poke of the shepherd's rod, that will get them moving forward again. And rods and staffs have been replaced by sheepdogs now, of course. Now, I, I don't often feel like my relationship with God is an intimate one, although I would like it to be. But I think mine's much more of a sheep and a sheepdog thing. And I'm the sort of sheep who'd rather be on the edge of the flock than in the middle of it. And if I stray too far sometimes, which I do, I wonder how I'll get back. God has to keep rounding me up and reminding me that I'm meant to be going in the same general direction as him and the rest of his sheep. And I need to remember that I'm supposed to be following God, not getting him to follow me.
And sometimes our lives can turn dark, can't they? We scare ourselves and we worry there is no God. Or we imagine that God's a monster who delights in judging and damning people. Someone with severe depression wrote this, if God is all you've got, you may find that God is all you need. That sounds like a tough lesson though, doesn't it? But at the end of the endless road, at the bottom of the bottomless pit, I think that's where grace lives. I hope so. It may not be as dark as it seems. If there's no light at the end of the tunnel, maybe the tunnel's not straight. We need to keep going. If we keep an ear out for the clack-clack of God's prompting and recognize that his prodding is for our own good, we shouldn't go too far wrong. We needn't fear shadows and darkness if we know God's presence. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I remember being marched through the streets of Derby after a football match in the 70s. The police were escorting us to the station. Hooliganism was rife then. Football matches were dangerous. I lived in constant fear of getting my head kicked in. And the police sort of shepherded us into this street. And loads of hostile Derby fans came charging towards us, throwing bricks. And we looked round. Not a bobby in sight. Lost a bit of confidence in the old bill that day, to be honest. And David's saying here, you serve me a slap-up meal in front of my enemies. None of us thought about sitting down, getting our sandwiches out and having a picnic in front of the brick-throwing Derby fans. We just turned and scarpered. We ran for our lives. This looks like the strangest line in the psalm, doesn't it? God's heart, I believe, is for peace. And David was a godly king. And his longing, too, was for peace for the Israelites. And David knew that peace doesn't mean having no enemies. That's naive, all leaders have enemies. And peace doesn't mean banishing your enemies. They could be plotting, unseen, gathering resources to attack you, unannounced. Now I think David wanted his enemies where he could see them and where they could see him. And if they could see each other going about normal, everyday activities, like eating meals, They'd see they were no immediate threat to each other. So why fight? Tunisia, Egypt, Bahrain, Libya. It's tense, it's complicated in the Middle East right now, isn't it? Let's pray the Arab people will find a way to eat in front of each other rather than shooting at each other. And what about our enemies? Do we have nothing to do with them? Someone wise once said to me, if you pray for the people you don't like, you might start to see them as God sees them. And you might even end up liking them someday. Unless you're Jesus, you can't really love everybody. But if we can learn not to hate or judge people, that's progress and we'll be heading in the right direction. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I don't know why that reminds me of the Brill Cream Bounce, but it does for some reason. I'm sorry about that. Um, if you were filling your car with petrol, or perhaps pouring cooking oil into a frying pan, and it overflowed, you wouldn't be overly pleased, would you? 
But the abundance of God, that's an amazing thing. You can't have too much of that, I'm sure. Blessed are those whose cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My, my theme is faith for the future. Are you excited about the future? Yeah, I'm excited about the future. I think about death a lot, but I'm not scared of dying. I'm like Peter Pan. Um, I think death would be an awfully big adventure. And I think life is an awfully big adventure too. I don't really want to live forever though, I don't think. When I was an atheist, um, I didn't trust evangelists who used to promise me heavenly riches or tried to scare me into belief with their threats of hell. That seemed a bit of a self-centered, what's in it for me, sort of faith. And Jesus was selfless, not selfish. So I wonder, shouldn't people be coming to faith for different reasons than reward or fear? That still feels like dubious outreach tactics to me, if I'm honest. Uh, and what's more important? What we're saved for, or what we're saved from? My understanding of God is different than it was five years ago. I'm sure it'll be different again in five years' time. I hope so. I, I don't want to stop exploring and testing the boundaries of what I believe and know about God. That sounds healthy to me. My faith will be a bit different to yours. And yours will be a bit different to other people's. I think that's natural. We've all come from different starting places. We've got different personalities. We've lived through different circumstances. We'll see life and death, faith and truth, from slightly different perspectives. I read another book by the Bishop of Durham called Surprised by Hope, which looked at two questions. What are we waiting for? And what are we going to do about it in the meantime? And I think Tom Wright has helped me realize that what we believe about life after death directly affects what we believe about life before death. And yes, I believe in life after death, but I also believe in life before death, and so does God. Now, I have a restless spirit. I, I like change. So the future is always more interesting to me than the past. And the future I'm most excited about is the one that's just up ahead. How will this church be? How will it be different in a year's time? What's God got in store for us, and how will we handle it? Faith that's focused a bit too far into the future, I think that can be a cop-out. We can have our head in the heavens, but we need our feet on the ground if we're to be any earthly good, as that old saying has it. If our faith in the future is a pie in the sky when we die faith, then I think we miss the point of what Jesus did when he began the process of bringing heaven to earth. Jesus was fully engaged in the present as well as the future. The future can and should be better. The present is how we help God to make it better. And when shall we live the Christian life, if not now? Where any of us have got to, though, in terms of what we think and believe, doesn't alter the truth of God, for God doesn't change. It's we who need to change. And I believe the more we look, the more we'll see God revealing himself. And the more we see, the more we'll know about God. 
And the more we get to know God, the more reasons we'll have to believe in him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all in balance, as Gwilym reminded us last week. To dwell in the house of the Lord, that's to be at home with God, to live in his company, and to be subject to his house rules. I don't really know what the future holds, but I'm sure God holds the future, so I'll trust in him and pray that I'll be open to learning more and more about who he is and what that means for me and for us. Because the future's uncertain, but we journey in faith. We'll need to pray for guidance. And if sometimes we're fearful, that's natural. But we can be confident that God calls us to follow and we can trust that he'll shepherd us through. And here's the thought I want to leave you with this morning. God's our shepherd, but we're not supposed to just follow him like sheep. Maybe we're not supposed to act like sheepdogs either, though there are times when that will be appropriate. But I think we're meant to be praying, thinking, learning, changing, and growing so that we can become more and more like the shepherd. And to live like Jesus, that would be an awfully big adventure. Amen. I'm going to ask Michael to come and sing Psalm 23 over you now. Um, And while Michael's playing, um, just give you some space. Is God trying to say something to you? Have you got something you want to say to God? You can use this space to reflect and pray if you want. Thanks for listening. Bless you. my shepherd I lack nothing He makes me lie down quiet